HTTP is a protocol that allows browsers and web applications to communicate across the internet. Everyone knows that HTTP is doing some important work because HTTP is at the beginning of most URLs that you enter into your browser. You might be familiar with the request response model, as well as HTTP request methods such as get, put, and post. But unless you've had a reason to learn more about the details of HTTP, you probably don't know much more than that. Julia Evans is a software engineer and writer who creates Wizard Zines, a series of easy-to-read online magazines that explain technical software topics. Julia's zines include Linux debugging tools, Help, I Have a Manager, and recently, HTTP, Learn Your Browser's Language. Her zines are a creative, innovative format for describing the world of software engineering, while also exploring her own artistic pursuits in writing, design, and illustration. Julia was previously on the show to discuss Ruby profiling. That was a great one. And she's returning to the show to discuss HTTP, as well as her creative process and her goals with wizard zines. Upcoming events that Software Engineering Daily will be at, KubeCon San Diego 2019, and AWS reInvent Las Vegas. We're planning a meetup at reInvent. There's a link to that event in the show notes. And that'll be on Tuesday, December 3rd, I think. We're looking for a venue. If you've got some place that has some space in Las Vegas at the event, hopefully, let me know. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Being on call is hard, but having the right tools for the job can make it easier. When you wake up in the middle of the night to troubleshoot the database, you should be able to have the database monitoring information right in front of you. When you're out to dinner and your phone buzzes because your entire application is down, you should be able to easily find out who pushed code most recently so that you can contact them and find out how to troubleshoot the issue. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. VictorOps brings your monitoring data and your collaboration tools into one place so that you can fix issues more quickly and reduce the pain of on-call. Go to victorops.com slash sedaily and get a free t-shirt when you try out VictorOps. And it's not just any t-shirt, it's an on-call shirt. When you're on-call, your tools should make the experience as good as possible. And these tools include a comfortable t-shirt. If you visit victorops.com slash sedaily and try out VictorOps, you can get that comfortable t-shirt. VictorOps integrates with all of your services, Slack, Splunk, CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic, and over time, VictorOps improves and delivers more value to you through machine learning. If you want to hear about how VictorOps works, you can listen to our episode with Chris Riley. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool, and you can learn more about it as well as get a free t-shirt when you check it out at victorops.com sedaily. Thanks for listening, and thanks to VictorOps for being a sponsor. Julia Evans, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. I'm so excited to be here again. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about HTTP in gratuitous detail, but <laughs> before we get to that gratuitousness, let's talk about the browser. I want to start with the browser because I think this is an easier way for people to understand HTTP. What happens when I enter an address into the address bar and press enter? Right. So I guess there's a bit of a question of how much detail we want to go into. But one of the things that happens... Well, okay, let's just talk about the whole thing. So the first thing that happens, let's say you type in google.com. It'll do a DNS lookup for the domain name, like google.com, and it'll get an IP address back from the DNS server, right? And then once it gets that IP address, it'll send an HTTP request for like the google.com site to that IP address. And of course, saying it's just google.com is, is a bit reductive. What does the actual address that we are entering in its full form, what does that look like? And explain what it is. 
Right, because you don't just have Google.com, right? Like right now, we're using Zencaster. So I'm at like Zencaster.com slash Jeff Byerson slash HTTP, right? And so you have the domain name, but you also have this path, right? Which is after sort of like Zencaster.com slash. And when you make a get request, you're not just making a request for like Google.com, right? You're making a request for like this thing after the slash, right? Like slash calendar or like slash Jeff Myerson slash HTTP. So what gets sent in the get request is you send the path, right? Which is like, let's use slash calendar because it's less to say if we're talking about like Google.com slash calendar, right? Um, so you say like get slash calendar. And then you also will say, because like when you make a request to this IP address, it doesn't necessarily actually know that you want a site on Google.com. So you also send a header, which is like, I'm interested in the website Google.com. Like that's like the domain that I'm working with. And it's also all prefixed by HTTP or HTTPS to indicate the protocol that you are using to communicate with that IP address that you're targeting. That's right. And that's a little bit interesting because like HTTPS includes HTTP, if that makes sense. Like HTTPS isn't, isn't a totally separate protocol. HTTPS is like you're sending an HTTP request, but that request is encrypted, but you're still sending an HTTP request. Right. Um, that looks sort of the same as you as the HTTP request that you would send if it weren't encrypted. It's just that you encrypt it. Most developers have used curl. They've probably used it from the terminal. How does the process of executing a curl command compare to what a browser is doing when it's looking up an address? So it's really, in, in a lot of ways, it's the same. So let's talk about like what's the same and what's different between what curl does and what your browser does. So if you can actually, if you do curl-v, like you do curl-v, google.com, and curl-v will tell you, tell you exactly what curl is sending to the server. And the big difference between what your browser does and what curl does is the HTTP headers it sends. So every HTTP request and response has these headers, which are sort of like these key value pairs. So one example of a header is, for example, like accept language, which says like, what language you would like to receive your uh, results in, or the user agent header, which says what browser you're using. And by default, if you just make a request with curl for like google.com, it'll only send basically like two headers. It'll send a user agent header that says this request comes from curl, and it'll send the host header, um, which is uh, like a required part of the HTTP protocol that every HTTP request has to have. But your browser will typically send a lot more headers. It'll send cookies uh, that like are part of that it's saved from like previous times visiting the website. It'll send set an accept language header, and it'll probably set a bunch of others. So yeah, the big difference is that are the headers. So the, at this point, there's a bunch of people who are listening to this, and they're like, "This has nothing to do with anything I'm doing <laughs> at work. I'm working on a big Spring application, or like I'm making my microservices." And I don't know how HTTP works. And frankly, I don't care. Right. I, I don't know what opcodes my computer is using below the surface to, to, to run my uh, assembly language. Why should I care about any of this? Isn't this low-level stuff like assembly code? Right. And actually, like to me, the reason HTTP is exciting is I think that it, a lot of it is very relevant to what's happening on your computers in real life. So let, let's talk about a few of those things. So one, I think, really basic thing that is relevant to many people about HTTP is like the status code that an HTTP response re uh, returns, right? Like sometimes you'll see HTTP 200, HTTP 404, 400, 503, 500. And I think if you're developing a website, these are things that you're going to have to see and you're going to have to return and you're going to have to decide which uh, response code to return sometimes, right? You need to think about, okay, should this be a 404? Or should this be a 500? So do you want to talk about status codes? If you do, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think one thing that took me a while to understand is because you have all these codes, right? You have like 200, 301, 400, 500. And I think at first it seems a little like, how do you know which one is which? But they're actually, it's pretty easy to classify them because they all start with either two, either one, two, three, four, or five. The ones that start with two mean that the request was successful, right? Like 200 okay is the most common one you see. So like two is good. The ones that start with three are typically redirects. So you'll say like, okay. And what you're doing is you're telling the browser like, hey, this web page isn't here anymore. Go to this other website instead. And there are permanent and temporary redirects, which you can talk about later because that's a super practical thing. It's like, it's very important. 
<laughs> uh, to get right. And it's one of these things where it's useful to actually understand how the HTTP protocol works. But we'll talk about that later, uh, maybe. They're the ones that start with four. And four, like, the, four means, like, is it, supposed to mean, like, it's like a bad request, right? So, for example, if I requested a website that doesn't exist, like, I don't know, like, julia.com slash, like, cats or something, like, it's not the server's fault that that site, that that page doesn't exist, right? <laughs> like, I, like, I chose, in some sense, to, like, request a page that isn't there. Another, like, for class, so that's, like, 404 not found, um, which we've all seen a lot, I think. There's also 403 forbidden, which means that, like, you were supposed to authenticate somehow by sending an API key or something, and you didn't send the right one, right? Again, it's, like, sort of, like, not the server's fault that you don't know the password, right? you like left out some authentication information. And there's an, another example of 400 class code is like 429 two minute requests, which is like you're being rate limited, which is like one of these like more specific HTTP response code, but that you do see in practice with APIs, right? Like you could be using an API and send two minute requests per second to it, and it'll send you back a 429 two minute request, right? So it's, it's like useful to know what these things mean. The, the last class is like the 500 class of error or like 5XX which means that something went wrong with the server. Um, so often if like there's an exception in your application, right, and like it crashed, these ones are sort of like the idea is that it's the server's fault and it's not the, the, the requester's fault. So HTTP is a protocol. What do we need to know about the layers of abstraction below HTTP? I would say what you need to know so the way I think about the layer of abstraction below HTTP, kind of at the simplest level, because there is a lot to know about it, but at the simplest level, you're sending um, some, like you're sending a, like the client sends a stream of bytes and the server sends back some bytes, right? So it's like some information is being sent. Like, you know, you could think of it as like a file or something, right? But it's like some information is being sent to the, the server and then some information is being sent back to the client. And it's worth um, so you, pointing out that this could be over either TCP or UDP, right? Not for HTTP. HTTP only works over TCP. Oh, okay. Yeah, because UDP is actually quite different because like TCP is sort of a stream. So let's say I'm sending you like a megabyte of data. I can send you a megabyte of data over TCP and I know that you'll get that megabyte kind of in order. But UDP packets are not like that. Like I can't just say like, oh, send like this IP address, like this like megabyte of data in order over UDP. That's not like a thing that the protocol supports because you can only send individual packets and they can't be that big and you don't know if they're going to get there or not. And so TCP sort of like takes care of like assembling all of the network packets that are being sent. And you, it allows you to pretend that you can just send someone a megabyte of data, even though that's not something you can do over a computer network in real life. Does that make sense? It does. I thought, and maybe we can discuss this later, but I thought the the cutting edge HTTP stuff, like a, a, I don't know if it was HTTP two or HTTP three. I thought there was some like cool new UDP kind of. There is, yeah, that's true. Um, so HTTP three is implemented on top of UDP, but like I think sort of how I think about it is almost as if like they re-implemented TCP on top of UDP, but uh. a different way, and then implemented HTTP on top of that. Okay. HTTP three on top of that. Does that make sense? So it's absolutely. Not like, like there's something like TCP in there. I don't honestly don't know a lot about HTTP three. Um, I haven't looked into it. I know some things about HTTP two because I've used it, but HTTP three I think is very like bleeding edge or like you know it's like quite new. Okay. So I don't I don't know like what that protocol looks like exactly. Here's a naive question: Why yeah. is HTTP so important for browsers? So. It's really because every time your browser requests any website, it uses HTTP. So, like, it's what powers the entire web, right? Like, you can't go to a website without using HTTP. That's, like, that's the only thing you can do. And I think the other reason it's important, actually, is that it's a relatively simple protocol. And, what like, that's sort of, like, why the web works, right? It's, like, anyone can implement an HTTP server. And, like, people have implemented HTTP servers in so many different languages, I just think that that's like, because all, all you're doing is sort of like you send a request, right? Like, I don't know, get like slash calendar. And then the response, like the rules of an HTTP response are sort of like, there needs to be a status code, right? Which is like 200, 300, whatever, 404. There needs to be headers and there's a body. And the, a request is similar, right? In a request, you have a path, you have headers and you have a, a potentially a body. So I think because like the HTTP protocol is actually so simple, like you just have like, like the, the either like the request path or the status code, the headers in the body. It means that 
like you can really understand it like pretty easily, you know, or you can understand at least parts of it. Like you might not understand every single header, but at least you're like, okay, there are headers there. This is the one I care about. And like, to me, that's sort of why it's important. And I think it's like a big part of probably why the web is successful, right? Because if this HTTP protocol was a lot more complicated, people probably wouldn't be able to implement HTTP servers, right? Like that easily. This is one thing that I, I realized. So I, I read your zine. That's you know one of the impetuses for doing this episode is you wrote a zine on HTTP. A zine is this. You're the only person I know who who has used that term. <laughs> I'm sure it's a term that is used elsewhere, but it's a you, it's a term you used to describe your written, well illustrated, short form eBooks or not short form, not long form. I guess medium form eBooks. They <laughs> yeah. are like magazines. Whatever twenty four pages. <laughs> yeah, 24 pages of nicely illustrated, easy-to-read content. But the reason that HTTP is actually quite a good selection of, of a topic to cover is it is this thing that I kind of glossed over. I never really went deep on like what HTTP was, basically for the same reasons that I outlined earlier. Like, I don't care about this thing. Like, it's not solving any of my problems. Like in terms of the code that I'm actually writing, like, because most of the things that I work with are at abstraction levels that gloss over. That's right. Like, where I actually need to know about this. But actually, even like that, granted, and, and that's not true for every programmer. There are plenty of programmers who, who, who are operating at that level. Learning about it was actually a little bit reassuring. It, it was it was a, this nice clarification on things that were previously opaque to me, and it made me feel like a little bit less of an imposter. <laughs> what, what what's something that you learned? Like, I mean, I'm gonna expose like how dumb I am, but like, I I didn't really know that this was just how browsers were talking to. I mean, it sounds naive, but like, I just didn't even think like oh yeah my browser is just making all these http requests to servers mm. it's a it's a simple request response framework and this browser is this super complicated thing that's just making tons and tons of http requests i guess i just hadn't thought about it yeah no totally and i think this is why i love to explain this stuff is because honestly like I think I learned about HTTP at some point. Like, I don't know when, but definitely when I started out, I didn't know about it, right? And it was something that I had to learn. And when I did learn about it, I was kind of had this feeling. I was like, wait, why did no one tell me this wasn't that complicated, you know? like Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I think it has a lot of, like, so I think one, like, sort of important application of HTTP is, like, have you ever worked with a website that was cached? I imagine. I mean, I use WordPress and WordPress has like a literally a button that you can click to clear your cache. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Or like sometimes like I used to work on like Stripe.js, which is this like JavaScript file, um, or I didn't work, work on it. I worked on serving it, if that makes sense, like making sure that it was being like served correctly from the web servers. So this was like this JavaScript file that uh, we had that we were serving to a lot of people and it needed to be like cached by like a content delivery network, right? But like if you have so, like, or I think I, like maybe a better example of this is just like my, my personal blog. So like when I update my blog, the like front page is cached basically so I can save money on web hosting. And like, so when I publish a new blog post and I refresh the page, it's the new blog post won't be there, right? Because it's being like, like the server that's being served from has like an old version of it. And like, the, the thing that I think is kind of, kind of cool is that if you look at the HTTP headers for a response, it'll often tell you, oh, this was cached by like some, like, by like a content delivery network or something. And like, there's like often an age header that's like, I've been caching this for like, this is like 300 seconds old, right? So if it tells me, well, like this version of this resource, like this HTML page is like, you know, two hours old and I published my blog post five minutes ago, then I know that like I need to clear the cache, right? And so if we think about that from the CDN's perspective, is yeah. are they literally using the header that or like one of the headers that is defining cache cache behavior, like cache control. Yeah. Are they using that to route information or to 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 actually do deletions or, or purge yeah. elements from their caches? Yeah. Like the CDN will actually look at the headers that use that and make decisions about what to cache based on it. 
Exactly. So if you say like cache control max age equals 300 seconds, like what if it gets a request and it'll look at what it's ha- it has in its cache and if that's more than five minutes old, it'll delete it and request a, n- a new version of the resource. And like this is like actually like like if you're developing a website, which like let's say um, has like static content, you know, like like for example, files like. I'm trying to say like images or JavaScript, right? Especially if you're like trying to serve new JavaScript, it's very important to make sure that it gets cached correctly, right? Because if you're serving old JavaScript with a new version of your website, like your website isn't going to work, right? Absolutely. I mean, there was a, there was a case where you know we do a lot of episodes, and uh, one right. of the episodes was with a particular company. And we had used an outdated logo of the company. And like, because obviously, like, you know, the co- companies change logos over time. And a 20 year old company, if you take their logo at 15 years, it looks very outdated relative to their to their most recent logo. And so we used some outdated logo. And actually, we had an issue where when we shared our podcast episode to LinkedIn, LinkedIn cached the featured image, which included the logo. And then the company reached out to to us and we updated it on WordPress, but try as we might, we couldn't figure out how to get LinkedIn to purge its cache. And so the company was like, like, why is this incorrect image still showing up on LinkedIn? I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I don't know how to fix that. Try as I might. Yeah, right. It's really true. But um, maybe I could have sent some kind of like cache busting request like to the LICDN domain and could have gotten yeah. it to work. Maybe. I feel like that's like a different, like they're probably not doing it based on just HTTP. Like it's probably a different kind of system. Probably. But yeah, that totally. Caching, <laughs> caching is a huge pain, but also very important, right? Like I think it's like a lot of websites would not be on the internet today if like like they, they would not be able to survive if, if it weren't for caching. Absolutely. So there are these different kinds of HTTP request methods. Everybody knows that. There's get, post, and some other ones. <laughs> I think that's a good description. Get, post, and some other ones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although there's still not like a like a pay API. That would be cool. HTTP request for pay. Isn't there some, like, well, maybe we could talk about that later, but there, I felt like, wasn't there like a status code, an HTTP status code for like, like didn't pay, but they never actually implemented it? Yeah, I think there is. I don't know about it, but I heard that too. I remember the days when I went to an office. Every day, so much of my time was spent in commute. Once I was at the office, I had to spend time going to meeting rooms and walking to lunch, and there were so many ways in which office work takes away your ability to be productive. That's why remote work is awesome. Remote work is more productive, it allows you to work anywhere, it allows you to be with your cats. I'm looking at my cats right now. But there's a reason why people still work full-time in offices. Remote work can be isolating. That's why remote workers join an organization like X-Team. X-Team is a community for developers. When you join X-Team, you join a community that will support you while allowing you to remain independent. And X-Team will help you find work that you love for some of the top companies in the world. X-Team is trusted by companies like Twitter, Coinbase, and Riot Games. Go to x-team.com slash daily to find out about X-Team and apply to join the company. If you use that link, X-Team will know that you came from listening to Software Engineering Daily. And that would mean that you listen to a podcast about software engineering in your spare time, which is a great sign. Or maybe you're in an office listening to Software Engineering Daily. And if that's the case, maybe you should check out x-team.com sedaily and apply to work remotely for X-Team. At X-Team, you can work from anywhere and experience a futuristic culture. Actually, I don't even know if I should be saying you work for X-Team. It might be more like you work with X-Team because you become part of the community rather than working for X-Team. And you work for different companies. You work for Twitter or Coinbase or some other top company that has an interesting engineering stack, except that you work remotely. 
X-Team is a great option for someone who wants to work anywhere with top companies. Maintaining your independence, not tying yourself to an extremely long work engagement, which is the norm with these in-person companies. And you can check it out by going to x-team.com slash sedaily. Thanks to X-Team for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So you have these things, get, post, put, other things. Why does it even matter what kind of HTTP request method we have? Because isn't everything in the body? Like, doesn't all the processing actually happen at the behest of the body? Yeah, that's a great question. Because, like, so traditionally, um, you use get requests to get resources. Like, like I want this image of a cat, please, right? Like, get slash cat dot PNG. And you use post requests to, like, send information to the server, right? Like, I would like to add a new cat to your list of cats, for example. Who knows? And post requests are used, for example, in, like, a form submission, right? When you're logging into a website, you put your, like, username and password, send it to the server, etc. But, like, in principle, you can, like, like, like we said, get requests can have a body. They typically don't, um, but they can. And so you can just as easily send, like, your login request with, a uh, get request, right? Like, it's like, why do you need both? So one important thing is the browser security model. So browsers do a lot of work to protect you from like malicious websites. So for example, let's say you're on some sketchy website um, okay, so something. Let's say I'm, I'm I would on a sketchy never. website. Um, yeah, so I, I'm on a sketchy website. You're not. <laughs> right. uh, um, and that website is like, and maybe I'm also like logged into my bank at the same time because, like, why not? Right? Who knows? And that website uh, tries to like load an image from my bank, right? Like it loads like my bank's logo from their website. So that's called like a cross origin request, and that's allowed, right? Because it, it can like embed like I don't know my bank's logo, and it's, the bank is like, who cares, right? But if it decides to like like a post or if it sends a post, tries to send a post request to my bank's website, and is like, hey, can you send like withdraw money from Julia's account? Let's say, right? The browser will be like, no, post requests to this other website are not allowed, right? You're not allowed to send that request. So like, even though like conceptually you can do whatever you want with a get request and a post request, they're not treated the same way by the browser security model. So like cross origin get requests or like certain kinds of get requests are allowed and cross origin post requests with bodies are not allowed. J- just to make sure I understand, you're talking about the fact that you have a page open on two different yeah. websites and yeah. one website is contacting another? Yeah, exactly. Like one website... Like, not, not the website, but the JavaScript on that page. Like, the JavaScript on that page is trying to, like, send a request to, to the other website. I think this, this might be unintuitive to some people because you imagine, okay, Julia's sitting there. She's got two browser windows open. How do those browser windows know about each other? I mean, isn't, isn't each application just saying, I am talking to Julia? <laughs> That's right. So they don't know, like... It's kind of interesting because they don't exactly know about each other. But the thing is that like when you make like let's say you're you make a get request from from the JavaScript, like okay, so I have some JavaScript that's on some sketchy website and I try to make a get request to like get I don't know, like my bank's just like my bank information. Um the browser will send that request. So like we'll send this this request. It's like get like the list of all of Julia's bank information and it will send my login cookies. So like a sketchy website can send a request like to my bank with my login cookies because the browser is the same browser, right? And so the browser has like the cookies for my, like for my bank and it'll send, like it'll let the sketchy website send a request to my bank with my login cookies, so, which so is kind cookies, of scary, right? Cookies here basically mean if... Whenever you visit a website and that website decides to leave cookies, those are cookies that it's information that that website is putting on your browser that is now accessible to any other website that has access to your cookies. So it's like very subtle because cookie security is really complicated. So like when, when I said that, like this, the sketchy website has access to my cookies, it, does, it can't read the cookies itself. Like it can't see what's in them. It can send a request, a get request using those cookies, 
But it, like the browser won't return the response, if that makes sense. Like there's this thing called the same origin policy, and what the same orig origin policy kind of says is like if you send a GET request, I will like send the person's login cookies, but I will not like I will send all the cookies for like whatever website you want to that server, um, but I won't tell you what the cookies are, and I won't send you the I won't give you the response. And this is called cores. This is like, or well, this is called the same origin policy. Um, and you can see how, like, if, if the browser didn't implement the same origin policy, it would be very bad, right? Because then, like, any website could, like, sort of send a request to any other website using, like, my private cookies. So let's go a little bit deeper on that acronym. So yeah. CORS, Cross-Origin Resource Sharing. That's right. Could you define the term origin? Yeah, sure. So an origin is, like, HTTPS colon slash slash Google.com. So it's, like the protocol and then like a sub possibly a subdomain and a domain a subdomain being the www or the yeah you know. or like mail.google.com right or whatever yeah. right so all the things all the things under like https colon slash slash star dot google dot com are under the same origin no. No. So calendar.google.com and google.com are different origins. Okay. Yeah. Which is, I think, something that often trips people up because they might have like api.mysite.com and like mysite.com. And those, those are different, different origins. Okay. Yeah. According to the browser, like they could be completely different domains. Like the browser sort of um, doesn't care. Okay. And then cores refers to... The cross-origin resource sharing, it's basically the policy around how can, can Google.com share with a sketchy website.com? Can docs.google.com share with mail.google.com? Yeah, exactly. And like the, the way I kind of think about it, because often people talk about like, oh, I can't do this because of cores, right? Or like cores is like stopping me from making this request. And this is a little nitpicky, but it's not correct. Because actually what's happening is like the browser has this policy called the same origin policy, which is like if the if the origin is not the same, you can't do stuff. And that applies to like all origins, right? Like like by default, if you have like a JavaScript from one origin trying to make a request to a different origin, it's not allowed. And it is allowed under some like restricted circumstances, but in general, it's not allowed. And what cores is, is a way that allows you to actually do it. So like cores is sort of the good thing that like lets you, that makes it possible. <laughs> and the same origin policy is the like thing that's stopping it. And that's like preventing you from like making those cross origin requests. Does that make sense? Conceptually, can you explain, explain how we create like bonds between these different origins? How can we allow yeah. docs.google.com to share information with mail.google.com? Yeah. So what, what you do, like, so let's say you have some resource that you want to share, right? For example, like, like maybe I think, I think in the zine, I have the example of like clothes.com and api.clothes.com, right? And we're like, okay, maybe you want clothes.com to be able to use like the like API and like api.clothes.com, right? So what I would do for those API requests, because um, by default, that would be not allowed, right? Like, which, like, it seems like it should be allowed, right? You're like, okay, I have some JavaScript on my website. I want to make requests to my own API. Like, please let me do it, right? So what, what you have to do is, so the, the, the place where you need to put the code to, like, allow the request is on the resource that's being shared. So if you're making the request, like, to api.close.com, api.close.com needs to say that it's allowed. Which makes sense from like a security perspective, right? Yeah. Like the the, the resource that's being like secured needs is, needs to say that it's okay. So what you need to do on api.close.com, if like that's your thing, is you need to set this word header called access control allow origin, um, and you would set that to let's say like close.com. And if you set that header, then the browser will be like, oh, okay, this request came from this origin like close.com, and the api.close.com said that this origin is okay because it set like, like the access control allow origin header to allow it. So I'm going to let this request through and it's fine. Oh, wonderful. So basically, basically you have uh, api.clothes.com signifies that it is able to handle a request from clothes.com and clothes.com says, well, I want to talk to api.clothes.com and you basically have... I mean, that's equivalent to having proof from each each one of them that they should be talking to one another in this context. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this illustrates an application of HTTP headers. It illustrates that 
you can use headers to establish uh, relationships between between different different URLs essentially or different URL schemas, different domains. Right, and and also that you have to often right like because it's very common I think to make cross origin requests in like modern JavaScript right like like often you'll need to like request something from another domain. And if you can't set those headers, you can't make your website work, right? Um, because like the same, the browser's same origin policy won't allow it. Right. And let's take this further with a, with another example. So let's say I use a web application and I try to log in, and that web application wants to ask me to two factor authenticate. And so I try, I try mm. to, uh, I, I try to log in, and it says. Uh, well, sorry, you can log in maybe, but you have to authenticate with another factor. Like you need your cell phone and then I feel my pocket buzz and I get a security code to enter and I enter it and then I get in. Well, that web application, maybe it used Twilio. So describe the communication between the web application and the Twilio API there because that's the web application using an external API. What happened in the communication between the web application and Twilio? That's a great question. And like, it, it's sort of interesting because you, you have two choices in that case, right? One choice is that the JavaScript on your page makes a request to Twilio. And then the other option is that you make a request like uh, in the JavaScript to your own server. And then your server on the server side makes a request to Twilio. Because you can sort of choose whether you want to make the request on the front end or on the back end. Does that make sense? It does. Can you go a little bit deeper? Like, let's let's put this in terms of HTTP. Yeah. So if you were making the request on the back end, there would need to be sort of two HTTP requests. So you would make like one HTTP request to your server being like, hey, can you make the request to Twilio to check to see if this is okay? And then the server would make another HTTP request to Twilio um, and then get a response and then maybe send a request back being like, okay, Twilio said it's okay or like Twilio said it's not okay or whatever. I guess it's really like... Really what it's saying is send a text message. You would send an HTTP request saying send a text message, and the server would send the request to Twilio to say send a text message. Absolutely. But let's say you've got your server, and you want to communicate with Twilio servers. I presume there needs to be some HTTP headers to get these two origins to trust one another? So only, it depends, like, not if you do it from your server. That's the thing, Right. Like, if you're making a request to Twilio from your server, like, there's no browser there, right? If you're just talking from your server to Twilio's server. It's only if you make the request to Twilio from the JavaScript that's running in the browser Ah, that you need to do this. Okay, so let's go through that use case. Let's say my... Yeah, uh, yeah. Let, let's man, talk about that. The website just talks directly to Twilio. Yeah, I guess I just want to say that, like, I don't think that you would want to do this in this case. Because if you wanted to send a request to Twilio, you would need to use your API keys, which are like a private thing between you and Twilio. And I think you would not want to put that in. <laughs> okay, all right. Like, so but I think, I think terrible, you would terrible contrived example. No, I think it's a great example because I think it like because I think this question of like whether you do the request on the back end or in the front end is like it's not an obvious question, right? And, like, it's easier to do it in the front end, in a way, because there's, like, less requests. Um, but there are, like, real reasons why that might not be a good idea. So because, I think actually And is. you're saying that's because you would have to keep your... You would have to give your keys to the front end? Yeah, exactly. And then, like, anyone using your website can potentially look at that request, right? Because if, if I... Like, if I'm on a website, I can just go into, like, developer tools and look at the network tab and see all the requests that are being made and all the headers. So, like, if you're making a request to Twilio... And like your API key is in a header, I can just take it and be like, "Sweet, now I can make like request to Twilio, right?" Like using your account, which like probably you don't want. Right. So then somebody can can have unfettered access to <laughs> to sending lots of text messages and stuff. Yeah. I'm sure that is a common you know security shtick that people pull. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's something that's important to know if you're writing JavaScript, which is that like any request you make from like your front end JavaScript code. Anyone who uses your website can see all of those requests, right? Like, like it doesn't matter if they're over HTTPS. Like, if I'm the one with, like, if it's my browser, right, I can see all, all the requests that, are, that it's making. 
By the way, so uh, it's it's worth pointing out here because I'm I want to cater to all levels of education at at this point that the JavaScript on your page is making HTTP requests similar to how your browser is making HTTP requests when you just enter an address into the address bar. Right. Um, and the interesting thing about like the way your JavaScript makes HTTP requests is that it needs to sort of those are all actually run by the browser. Right, and so the JavaScript sort of needs permission from the browser to make any of those requests, um, which is where things like the same origin policy come in. Right, like the JavaScript can't just like do whatever it wants. It can ask the browser, like when you make a request from JavaScript, you're effectively asking the browser, "Hey, can you make this request for me?" And sometimes it'll say no. Right. Beautiful. Okay, so in this situation, assuming we wanted to send requests to Twilio from our browser, yeah. even though we know we kind of shouldn't do <laughs> yeah, this because yeah, yeah. we're exposing yeah. our API key. What would the request look like? What would we need to put in those headers? Right. So when we're making the request, it's a post request. And we don't have to put anything in particular in the request. So the, the request just looks like it's a normal request. You send like whatever the Twilio API says you need to do, right? Um, you probably send some authentication information. You put an API key you do like you put a body, which is like maybe a text message you want to send. The request is sort of normal. And then Twilio on the other side um, will send a response. And if this works, which I guess we're hoping it does, because that's the point of this example, uh, is that this has worked. Um, Twilio will send a response with the access control allow origin header set, uh, set to star, saying like anyone can make requests to me. I don't care who they are. This is fine. And yeah, and then the browser will see, okay, um, this Twilio says this is okay from any origin. And so this request is allowed. There's actually an additional step here with post requests where like you're not allowed, the browser won't even allow you to send a post request right away because like sending a post request itself could, will, could, is already sort of a dangerous thing to do. So what it'll actually do, like you'll, from your JavaScript, it looks like you just sent a post request, but the browser will first send an options request being like, am I allowed to send a post request? Um, and then Twilio will be like, yes, you are allowed to send a post request. And then you'll send the post request and Twilio will be like, yes, this is okay again. And then you'll get the response to the post request. So when you make a cross-origin post request, it's actually two requests. There's an options request that's like, is this okay? And then there's a, the real post request after. I have this whole diagram in the zine which explains this because it's like quite the, like, it's, it's quite the dance. It is quite the dance. I encourage anybody listening to this that is even mildly intrigued to check out your zine. It is affordably priced at twelve dollars, and uh, there there are there is enterprise, I believe, based pricing. So maybe you can get your manager to pay for it for your whole team. And I want to talk about the zine creative process a little bit later, but totally uh, different different question because I, I feel like we addressed the the Twilio thing. We can close that door. <laughs> Do all browsers treat this situation, this 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 system of HTTP and the way that JavaScript handles HTTP, do all browsers do it the same or do different browsers have different implementations? I would say for the same origin policy, I think it's broadly the same. Definitely not everything. Like browsers do, for example, like support different headers differently. Like I, I really tried to focus in the zine on things that are the same between every browser because like most of the sort of like core important things like how are redirects handled, right? Like how how does the same origin policy work? Kind of are the same between browsers. My I haven't been paying as much attention to this as I want. Um, but I know that Firefox has made some changes to like being more strict about how it enforces the same origin policy. So one thing that I noticed is I turned on sort of like like a, like an even stricter same origin policy, uh like to disable tracking in Firefox recently. And what I noticed is I was I was making sort of like a fun little Twitter app, like just on my computer that was like hot linking images from Twitter.com to get people's like profile pictures. And in Firefox, I had like sort of like more strict, same origin, like anti-tracking stuff set. And what happened was that it wouldn't get any any of the Twitter profile pictures because it's like I won't make cross-origin get requests anymore like this. Like like it, it had like because I was being more strict, it disallowed it because it was like, this is basically the same as like embedding a tracking pixel. So I can't tell that like this image that you're embedding isn't a tracking pixel. So I'm going to block it. And I actually like ended up making, like taking that back and making my browser sort of like less secure because uh, I wanted to be able to embed those pictures from twitter.com. That's a great example. And it totally illustrates 
how the implementation of these things is not some kind of objective science. It comes down to some sub- subjective decisions about what browsers should and should not be able to do. Right. And I, I think well, like it's really nice to give people the choice, too. Like, well, I'm, I think I'm going to sound like, I, I really love Firefox. Like, another thing that Firefox is doing is they have this new feature called containers, or I think it's a plugin, but I think, like, the plugin is developed by Mozilla. And containers allow you to sort of, like, say, okay, like, separate out my cookies for this site from, like, everything else. So I can have, like, a banking container. And then that means that there can be, like, sort of no contact between, like, the cookies for, like, my banking websites and, like, everything else I'm browsing on the internet. And, like, it's almost as if, like, I was using a different browser for banking, right? That had nothing to do with the browser I was using for, like, browsing sketchy websites. And I think, I think that's really nice. Like, I think it's a nice feature. Have you looked into WebAssembly very much? Uh, not, not, not too much yet. No. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, that makes two of us. I mean, you got to imagine the however many questions we have about you know browser hygiene between different browsers today. I, I assume WebAssembly will complicate things further. What about Electron? Have you looked at Electron much? Also, no. Okay. I feel like when I think about Electron, from like, like I think of it as sort of a different browser. You know, like, right. like it doesn't have anything to do with like the other browsers that I'm running. Like, I don't think it would share like cookies or anything. So like from that perspective, I don't think. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. You know what's interesting about about modern browsers is how... Well, I mean, you see this with with Chrome, with like the I mean, Chrome being both a browser and an operating system. That's mm. pretty profound. Like the fact that you think about it, it's almost like you have like on my Mac, I'm using a a browser. That browser is has like the functionality of an operating system, which is kind of crazy. It kind of makes you think about like this this thing is as complicated as an operating system. It must be as complicated as an operating system because there's basically an operating system that is a browser out there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's quite true. All like right. Chrome, Chrome OS, like if you have a Chromebook, my understanding is that today Chromebooks run Linux. That's correct. And so like, like when I think of an operating system, I think of like device drivers and like keyboard drivers and like, you know, like CPU scheduling and like managing RAM and all of that. And like the browser isn't doing that, you know, like I think there's still like a pretty clear separation between like the OS and a browser technically. And like the browser is definitely doing a lot like, and you can have like all these like very complicated applications running in the browser. But at the same time, like if you're using a Chromebook, like the OS is still doing all the things that you would expect the OS to do, you know. But on the other hand, you open your system monitor and it's like you've got, eight instances of Chrome and Chrome helpers at the top. And you're like, wow, this yeah. thing is managing so much memory. And it's like, yeah, definitely. And, and then you think about like, well, device drivers. I mean, I don't really have very many devices I'm plugging into my computer. I mean, what would be harder? Like to uh, fully integrate all the features of a browser into an operating system or to fully integrate all the features of an operating system into a browser? I mean, I don't know. So like, like, I think Linux is, like, 4 million lines of code or something. Right, fair you know? enough. Like, it's really a lot. Like, I, I'm sure, like, a Firefox is also, like, 4 million lines of code, but it's, like, different lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, it's a bad deviation. Tell me something about HTTP that is esoteric that you learned while writing this scene. 
I learned about some weird status codes, which honestly have evaporated from my brain. <laughs> um, like, like I think at some point I looked at all the different status codes because I gave examples of like, you know, like 11 or 12 in the zine. And then like I looked at the list and I was like, okay, cool. There are like 70, you know, like, and some of them I really had not heard of. Like one, I think, example of something I learned is that like they're the redirect status codes that are like 301 permanently yeah. um, versus like 302 found. And by the way, the important thing to know about that is that if you return a 301 move permanently, browsers will cache it and you can't change your mind about doing that redirect. So if you like aren't sure that you want to be redirecting to this other site forever, like the rest of your life, it is better to do a temporary redirect, which is 302. Um, but anyway, I learned that there's also like a 307 or a 308, which like does something different. But you can always just set an, another 301 at the whatever the, the, the 301 that you've... I mean, can't you just set up another redirect? No. I mean, you can, but like browsers which already visited your site won't look at it because they will just cache the redirect and they'll do the redirect without asking you again. No, but you could set you could set a three oh three oh one wherever you're redirecting it to, right? Oh, and redirect it back. But then I guess that but, would effectively destroy the link that you're three oh one ing to initially. Yeah, and you would also just end up in a redirect loop forever, right? Like, like if you redirect somewhere and then you redirect back, it would just redirect again. Like, well, I'm not saying I, redirect back. I'm saying redirect to some third. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you could do that for sure. Um, but like, you might also want to just go back to not having a redirect at all, potentially, right? Mm. Like, but in any so, case, I see your point. 301 can have dire consequences. Yeah, it's just like sort of... And you can also set uh, like a limit to be like, only do this for like, you know, two days. Um, if you... Why is it permanent? That seems crazy. It's, it's called... The name of the status code is 301 moved permanently. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, self- I mean, that's, that, is a, that term is used very rarely in software per the permanent term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely faster. Like if you're sure that you want to keep that forever, it means that the browser doesn't need to like make that request every time, which is nice, you know, like for performance. But if you're not sure, it's, I think it's good to start out with a 302. <laughs> and then maybe if it's been a while, you can upgrade it to 301 and be like, I think I'll keep this forever. It's okay. What happens if you set a 301, then set a 302? Well, because the thing is that the browser will have cached it, right? So it's not going to make the request again to ask it. Like, so, like, for new browsers, sure. Like, for, um, by, what, what I mean by new browsers is, like, new people who are coming to your website who haven't visited it before. Oh. Um, but for someone who's already visited your website, like, their browser isn't going to make the request again. They can, if they want to fix it, they can clear their cache, like, in their browser to mm. say, uh, okay, forget what you remember about this website and just, like, make the request again. But, yeah. You have to be careful. Um, I could see like malicious attacks where if you could, let's say like you, if you hacked a competitor, a competitor's GitHub, and you use their GitHub to push out like a bunch of 301s that just destroyed the routing infrastructure for all their customers. I mean, that sounds like yeah. it would just be like a permanent disaster. Yeah, that would be like catastrophic, actually. Not to That's give anybody an ideas. Idea. Like, yeah, I've never heard of anyone doing that. Please but, don't do that. Maybe I should remove that. Yeah. That's like a, that's... <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. It seems really bad. That, wow. Please nobody ever do that. <laughs> yeah. That, that, um, that's like a, it seems like a much worse way of defacing someone's website, actually. Jesus. I, I honestly wonder, maybe I should just remove that from... If, if that's not like a known attack vector... It's, it's interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll leave it in then. Because the, like that, that 301 permanent thing, that sounds terrible. Like, can we just yeah. lobby to remove that, please? <laughs> like, can we move it to the blockchain somehow? Like, something yeah. like that. Yeah. I, I definitely used it for my for my zines website. Like, because I, I decided, like, at least I think I did. Like, Yeah. Oh, no, okay, I can tell you why, why it's useful to do this move per- permanently thing. It's because, like, um, if you, let's say you have, a, like, a URL that has some, like, Google juice already, like, some, like, SEO juice. If you do a 301 move permanently, Google will transfer, like, your, like, search juice. I don't know what you say. I'm not an SEO person. But, like, to the new website. Mm. And it won't do that for a 302. I believe that's my understanding hmm. and my like, sort of weak understanding of SEO. So, so there are like real reasons to do it. Google. Um, Cause Google will be like, okay, you've promised that this is the real new website. So I'll just like, yeah. Google, you're incentivizing a dangerous status code. <laughs> yeah. But, and sometimes it's okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I implement, I, I set like a three, I set up a 301 for, for one of my sites and it's fine. <laughs> 
I, I was sure. Of all mediums, why zines? So what happened, the way I learned about zines was I, I read this book about sort of like punk culture in the 90s called Girls to the Front. That's sort of like about Riot Girl. Um, and it talked about people um, making zines, like sort of like, like maybe about fans that they liked, about their personal experiences or, or about feminism. And I thought this was really exciting. I think like just like the idea of like publishing something on your own that you'd like made yourself with your hands and that like had something that was about something that you cared about was very exciting to me, you know? And like there's this sort of like aesthetic where it's like photocopied and handmade. And I really loved that. So I, I'd read this book and then I was giving a conference talk at PyCon and I was like, okay, I'm going to go give this talk and I'm going to write a zine and it's going to be about something I love. And I was like, what do I love? I love S-Trace. So I wrote this like, you know, like 12 or 16 page zine about S-Trace and I like wrote it in Sharpie um, and I made 200 copies of it and I handed it out at my conference talk at PyCon and people loved it, right? They were like, wow, this is so cool. Like now I can like learn about S-Trace from this zine. And I think part of like, like in that context, what I was excited about was like, I wanted to give people something that they could take home from my talk that was like a physical item, you know, that wasn't just like, because often I would want to like give people like resources or links, but like people are going to forget, right? You have to like wait all these notes from a conference. But I was like, if, they, if, if I give them a zine about S-Trace, they'll remember because they'll have it in their bag, you know, like <laughs> it won't be like the other things that you forget. Yeah, so that, that was how it started. And then I think it just, like, really resonated with people. And they were like, oh, this is, like, a really good size. It's a good amount of information. Um, it's really fun. I learned about S-Trace, and I wasn't going to learn about S-Trace otherwise. Um, so I kept making them. Yeah. That's... Zine is this very curious term. Because, like, when so when I think zine, I think, like, like, I have read Mad Magazine way back in the day. But your your work is not really like Mad Magazine. I mean, it's no, not really. I think of it more. It's it's kind of like XKCD. It's kind of like I don't know. Like it reminds me a little bit of Calvin and Hobbes for some weird reason. But I think Geneva Zine is like the form factor. You know, like it's like it's printed out. Ideally, it's like a small thing, and it's something which is like self produced and like self published. I think like that's what it is like like because I have I have like a lot of zines on my bookshelf and they're all about different things you know like like some of them are about the, I have one which is like a guide to safer sex I have one that's like about someone's experience like being deaf some of them are like personal zines about people's experiences some of them are informational um some of them are just like zines that are of poems but the thing that they have in common is that that they're all sort of like small and like self-published and I think often, like, they also that they have, like, a sort of a, a specific, like, voice to them, right? Like, you can really tell, like, it, it sort of feels like it's someone talking to you about something that they think is, like, important. Well, I think it also hints at, it's like a subtle insubordination thing, because computer science education in its most conventional form is, like, really outdated. And it's, like, it's one of these things that is just, like, the conventional university computer science education, as far as I can tell, I've been removed from it for a pretty long time, but I sense it's still desperately grasping for relevance. And something like your zine is kind of insubordinate in the sense that it explains material that people would say, oh, you need to read the networking textbook. And it needs to be this dry, like colorless thing and 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 i don't know I, I i like the idea of things being presented much more appealingly yeah i think i've now met a, a lot of uh, university professors who are really doing incredible work and who are like very relevant so like it's definitely not all like that but definitely when i mean i went to a very theory focused university like sort of like cs theory focused same and because of that i think like the practical stuff really kind of wasn't there uh, or like wasn't well done honestly, a lot of the time. Do you think that's madness? Like, I think it's way easier to learn theory after practice. For, for me, I loved it. I don't know. Like You like the theory. So, yeah. Like, I was a pure math major, right? Like, um, so I was like, I just want to do all the theory all the time. Yeah. And then when I graduated from university and I started to work, I was like, oh, cool. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know. Um, like, for example, I didn't know how HTTP worked, right? I didn't know a lot about networking. I didn't know about operating systems. Um, and then I just picked it up. And I feel like that worked fine for me to sort of do, like, you know, like practice after theory in, in, in some ways. 
And I think like what I more want to like communicate to people isn't that like there's like a right or wrong way to learn, right? You could do like practice first, or, like theory first or whatever. But that like this practical stuff, like how HP works is something that you can pick up whenever, right? Like it's like if you don't know it yet, like, you know, like if you don't know like that, like browsers use HTTP to make requests, like that's okay. And you can learn today, you know, like maybe today is the day that you learn it. I learned it last night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's like fine. Right. Cause like so many people, like, I feel like also there's all kinds of things I don't know. Right. And I've been like successfully doing my work without knowing all kinds of probably basic things. And I think we're all kind of out there doing like our work without knowing lots of things. And so I feel like what I want to accomplish with my zines is just like, Hey, cool. Here's this thing you could know more about. Um, maybe today is the day you learn about it. Right. Or you outsource the illustration. I outsource the covers. The covers. I, I have an illustrator who does the covers. I do everything else myself. Have you thought about, like scaling up your creative output by doing more outsourcing because I think I think this is one of the cool kind of nascent opportunities in the like kind of freelancing gig economy knowledge work world the idea of kind of paying creative people to to work with you in kind of a uh, like a reasonably priced fashion like the yeah Oh, I love hiring. Like, uh, the illustrators that I've worked with are all incredible. And, like, every time I work with them, I'm like, oh, my God, I can pay this person. I know, to do right? this really cool work for me. And I could never do this. Like, it's, like, <laughs> like it's because uh, I'm really not that good of an artist. It's, like, not. It's just a fact. Um, so, uh, like, it's it's so fun. I, I think that, to me, to me, the hard thing about writing, like, quote-unquote content is the ideas and how to present them. Right. Well, and then that's like your core competency. So it's like, it almost makes more sense for you to spend as much time as possible doing that and to outsource literally everything else. But I don't know, like, that's like most of what I do. Like, that's like what I spend my time on. If oh, I, be- I believe you. I don't feel like there are a lot of other things that I spend my time on other than like figuring out what to write and writing it. Because like, in, in, in a way, like, one, one thing that I like about the zine format also is that it's quite short. And so, like, writing down all the words doesn't actually take that much time, you know? Because, like, I focus so much on, like, how can I explain this in, like, as concise and, like, easy to understand a way as possible. So, like, a lot of these pages have, like, you know, like, it's, like, 100 words on them. (laughs) So, yeah. Just a few more questions. I noticed that most of your examples use Netlify. Why is that your paths of choice? So, I I like Netlify. Why do I use it? I don't know. So, I switched to Netlify... Like, Netlify is kind of like GitHub Pages, right? It's better than GitHub Pages in the sense that, like, I use Hugo to generate, like, everything, all my websites are static sites, and GitHub doesn't support Hugo, and Netlify does support Hugo, and also, like, if I'm generating, like, a website with Node, Netlify, like, Netlify, I guess, supports, like, more complicated build processes for static sites, which is why I use it. Though also, like, in some sense, I could just, like, do the build building on my laptop, right, and have, like, a script that I run that builds it on my laptop and then pushes the HTML and then run it, like, literally anywhere else, um, which is what I what I used to do when, like, before I used Netlify, is I just had a script that, like, built it and then, like, rsync the HTML over to, like, my web host. Yeah, but I think, I think it's, it's, they have, like, a bandwidth limit, which is pretty low, which I feel like is my main issue with it. Like, like I put a CDN in front of Netlify because otherwise, like, they charged a lot for bandwidth, I think. Okay, last question. So you've basically gone from, you were you used to work at Stripe. You were a fairly early employee at Stripe. I, I know you loved the company. Um, you're passionate about it. But you basically became a quote-unquote indie hacker, or not, not you're kind of an indie <laughs> hacker, somewhere between an indie hacker and I guess just like artist or what, you know, zine, zine, zine author, self-funded individual. <laughs> what has the psychological shift been like? I've been on my own, I guess, for like two two months about. So it's very new. Like I think it's a pretty big transition. When when I started working for Stripe, I switched to working remote, um, which was also a really big transition, like from working in an office to working remotely. People who like are like across the country. And and I think like of the of it as being sort of like the same scale of transition, if that makes sense. Like, 
So sure. yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of like hot takes about it. I'm like, this is like really different. I'm learning about like how to think about it. We'll see. Like, yeah, but it, it's been, it's been fun so far. Like I, the first thing I did was I published this HTTP zine, which was really, which was really great. And I'm really happy with it. I mean, I certainly found it useful. Certainly worth $12 to me. <laughs> I'm really happy. I'm always really delighted when people tell me that they learned something from, from my zine. Absolutely. Um, Juliet, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been really fun talking. Thank you. If you want to extract value from your data, it can be difficult, especially for non-technical, non-analyst users. As software builders, you have this unique opportunity to unlock the value of your data to users through your product or your service. Jaspersoft offers embeddable reports, dashboards, and data visualizations that developers love. Give your users intuitive access to data in the ideal place for them to take action, within your application. To check out a sample application with embedded analytics, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com jaspersoft. You can find out how easy it is to embed reporting and analytics into your application. Jaspersoft is great for admin dashboards or for helping your customers make data-driven decisions within your product because it's not just your company that wants analytics, it's also your customers. In a recent episode of Software Engineering Daily with Tibco, we talked about visualizing data inside apps based on modern front-end libraries like React, Angular, and Vue.js. If you want to check out that episode, it's available on softwareengineeringdaily.com. You can also check out Jaspersoft for yourself by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Jaspersoft and finding out about embedded analytics. Thanks to Tibco for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Daily.